Hi, everyone. This is Catherine Adams. And Elizabeth Wallace. And you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 184. And tonight, since we don't have a Night Vale episode, we wanted to talk about a movie that, I can't believe it, it just as of yesterday had its 20-year anniversary. The Blair Witch Project. Now we know after 20 years, everybody has probably already said everything that you can possibly say about this movie. However, we still want to record an episode about it because it's one of our favorites. It so is. I mean, it's been lampooned to death and it's had eh, some good sequels and some not good sequels and people like to make fun of it and whatever. But man, you just can't imagine if you didn't go to the theater when that movie came out and just just watching this amazing movie and being so totally freaked out by it. And at the time, 20 years ago, we really didn't have it. I mean, this is what started movies like Cloverfield. It really was responsible for stuff like that. Now, I want to know, how did you find out about this movie back when it was getting ready to come out? I swear to God, I think it was you and Nathan, because you guys had recorded on VHS, yes, fine, 20 years ago, um, you'd recorded The Curse of the Blair Witch, which was the documentary that it was about it. I remember a guy at work after the movie came out and he was like, oh, Blair Witch is totally real. I'm like, no, it's not real. It's a movie. He's like, there's a documentary. I'm like, the documentary wasn't real either. But (laughs) at the same time, it was so well made and so believable. There's people to this day who'll probably argue with you about it and think that it's actually real. Yeah, our cable had the sci-fi channel back then and we saw these ads for Curse of the Blair Witch, the preview to the Blair Witch Project movie had never heard about it up until then. So we sat down and watched that. I couldn't sleep that night after we saw that. I think in many ways, okay, it was both Curse of the Blair Witch scared the hell out of me. And then, you know, we were looking at more information online and there was an ad for Curse of the Blair Witch on the Sci-Fi Channel. And it was just some of those creepy ass watercolor and pen and ink and old woodblock uh, or stuff made to look like woodblock illustrations from Curse of the Blair Witch with these like flash animation bars and daggers of black cutting across it and sounds of Heather and Mike and Josh from the movie scared the crap out of me (laughs) really i mean freaked me out they just nailed the tone of the movie i mean everything about it and i was looking so the movie was made for sixty thousand dollars and it ended up making 240 plus million dollars but they spent the studio company artisan entertainment when they bought it they spent several million dollars to market the movie and part of the marketing was to do like It's basically a viral campaign, you know, 20 years ago, and with the whole Curse of the Blair Witch, and then on IMDb, all three actors, their IMDb credits up until the movie was released were listed as missing presumed dead. I mean, they completely told everybody that it was real right up until the movie was released, and it just, it creeped me out so badly, but at the same time, I knew that it it was a movie, but... Did you guys go see it in the theater? Oh, yes. Oh, my. Yeah. Your experience, I think, when it ended was a little different from ours. Yeah, I've probably said it on this podcast before, but I love that. I went to see it with my buddy Jason when I was living in Asheville. And I don't know, it's funny because it came out in July, but I remember it being a little chilly. I'm probably just remembering how cold the movie was. But I remember the movie ended and the lights come up and me and Jason stand up and we go to leave and there's this woman in the row behind us and she's still sitting and she's looking up and her eyes are so wide and she said, 
I got here after the movie started. Was that actually supposed to be real? And we're like, no, no, it's fine. It's totally fine. I mean, she really believed all of it. It was just, man, it was so cool. Well, in addition to rewatching The Blair Witch Project on the director commentary setting, because I love that, and I will probably keep making references to tidbits from that for this whole podcast. But I also, I thought about maybe watching the uh, the Blair Witch sequel that came out just a few years ago. So I did a search on... Um, Amazon Prime, and this came up that I'd never heard of before, Creating Modern Ghost Stories, The Blair Witch Project. And it was an interview at the Library of Congress from 2017, and it was with uh, one of the co-directors, Eduardo Sanchez, uh, the co-producer, Michael Manello, and then the history fabricator, Julia Myrick, who I think is now known as Julia Fair, I think, or maybe that was her maiden name back then, I don't know. She was responsible for creating a lot of the mythology of this movie and not only that but like fabricating documents to make it look like there was an actual history (sighs) to the myth itself in addition to the actual instances in the movie and she talked about how so many people were just convinced by a lot of this stuff like this is really funny in the interview. Maryland's Historical Society for years would get people calling in wanting to see a copy of The Cult of the Blair Witch, which was something that was oh. mentioned in Curse of the Blair Witch. And the yeah. Maryland Historical Society would be like, no, it, it doesn't exist. That was made up for the movie. And their response was, so you're not going to show it to us. <laughs> oh, it was just God. People, you would tell them that it's not real, but they would point to all this stuff that they seeded the internet with all these obscure websites and documents and mythology and everything. And he just all of that sort of steamrolled into this unstoppable thing that the Blair Witch Project became. God, and you know, the interviews that they did with people, I mean, there's a couple of them that are like, well, yeah, that's just probably an actor and everything. But some of them, I mean, I've got a coworker who always talks about it between the interviews you see in the movie and the interviews you see in The Curse of the Blair Witch. They're exactly just like real people being stopped on the street and asking about this myth. I love the woman who's holding her kid and the kid is like freaking out. She's like, it's okay, honey. It's not real. It's totally real. But you know, and and the, I loved her reaction. They're getting all this information from her and she's like, I don't know. I haven't looked her up yet to see what she does for a living. It's the woman who's holding the kid and telling about the story she's heard about the Blair Witch. And they're saying, oh, well, do you think she's actually up there? And she smiles. She's like, I don't go up there. You know, it's just, it's really super believable. And like the older gentleman that they're interviewing, several older people that they interview, they're so natural. It's like you stop somebody on the street and stuck a camera in their face and said, what's Smith we've been hearing about? And you believe them. Well, that's the thing. And that was something that they talked about in the director commentary. The woman with the little baby, she was not one of the planted actors in that. They they mentioned that they were doing this filming for this project, whatever like that, and they got people would play along. So she was making all that up. They couldn't find her. I'm not sure if they ever found her. They thank God that they had an actual actor's release so they could use the footage. But I mean, she was like, she was a favorite from all the test audiences. Everybody loved that. She was making it up, making up the whole thing. Unfriggin' believable. I mean, that just... (laughs) 
That blows me away. She, yeah, you're right. She's actually one of the best ones, and her kid was great too. And he's like picking his nose during the whole thing. <laughs> totally natural. And freaked out like a little kid would be if mommy was telling a really scary story. Exactly. Absolutely. Oh man, that's so cool. And then most of the lines in the movie are improvised, and so you get these wonderful little gems, and they're talking about, you know, oh, well, you know, like. You're obviously the captain, and you're obviously Gilligan and everything. It's like, well, the captain was really fat. Well, you're a thin captain. Let us not call him the captain anymore. It is the skipper. <laughs> like, that's so fun. I loved that in the theater. And they really needed those lighthearted moments to balance out what it turned into. I mean, just, oh, oh God, that whole bit where they're in the tent and they start hearing these little kids' noises. And that was like the oh, night man. after hearing what sounded like great big branches being snapped in half in the distance. Well, that is so crazy. So they, the tent starts rustling and they bolt and they run for it. And then, you know, they, they get to a stopping point and, you know, they're telling the guy to shut the lights off and you hear Mike's voice in the background, all lights off, all lights off. Scared the hell out of me again. I remember one of the things that stuck out to me was the sound of the first night when they hear something and you hear Heather being like, oh God, it's cold. And then you hear the sound of the tent zipper. And man, the sound work on this film is really, really good because I have gone camping several times since then and every time I hear the sound of the fucking zipper pulling up, I'm like, oh God, oh man. It was really realistically done. Just, uh Oh, God. Nathan and I went camping with uh, Hannah and a friend of hers from uh, the summer program, I think, that she was doing one year. Oh, God. And when we were camping, and I remember in the middle of the night starting to think about Blair Witch Project. And I have mm-hmm. never been so disciplined in my own mind before. But I just told myself, nope, we are not going to think about that. <laughs> this is not the time for that. No, absolutely not. But you're right about like somehow, and I know, I think, I don't know how long the movie is. It's at least several nights. But according to IMDb Trivia, thank you, IMDb Trivia, they filmed for eight days. And their original plan was that Josh and Heather were going to be really good friends. And Mike was kind of the instigator. And he was kind of, you know, he they didn't know him as well and whatever. But during the filming, they're all improvising. Josh and Heather were just going at each other. They ended up editing it out most of it because it got really friggin' irritating. And all the yelling and all the, the people just, just teasing each other and tormenting each other and being awful. And yet you'd have these little, little bursts of humor every once in a while. And they get to the bit with the stick figures in the trees, which is one of my favorite visuals out of the whole film. I, I mean, just adore that. Just so beautifully creepy and unexplained. And you had, could oh, yeah. imagine going for a walk in the woods and seeing that and then just turning around and running for it, just running away. Oh, absolutely. And up until that point, you know, they'd been making jokes about deliverance and they said somebody's obviously screwing with them and they're talking about rednecks and they're looking at the stick figures in the trees and one of them, I can't remember if it's Josh or Mike, one of them is just like, no way, man, no redneck is this creative. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> it was brilliant. I mean, you were still scared, but you were like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Apparently earlier versions of it were going to have like, Josh maybe like found Heather very attractive and he was always bummed out that she didn't return. I'm like, I'm so glad they didn't. I'm so, that, that was just too, uh, 
Well, you know, watching the interview that I watched today from uh, 2017, and they talked about some of the genesis of the movie itself. The original plan was that it was going to be a documentary, and it was going to have experts watching the footage in sequence and analyzing what was happening and like seeing, you know, I think in one point in the director's commentary, they had mentioned that they were planning on having like this low rumbling tone in the background that would be analyzed well but they you know ended up not using it because they didn't need it well you know they actually were like a year into the production they had the footage and they're working on this whole documentary idea and i loved how they phrased it they talked about the fact that we realized that the documentary stuff was getting in the way of the footage. They had had no plans of having this be just the footage telling the whole story, but that's what ended up working best. And I love that. The fact that this was supposed to have kind of been like Curse of the Blair Witch, but they found something that worked even better. Honestly, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've found that like working on projects and you have this idea and this big frou-frou-y thing and everything, and you really want to center the whole idea around it, and you get working on it, and you're like, oh, this is working great, except for this big frou-frou-y thing, and I'm going to ditch that, and then what remains is so much better. And it's just, it's, but you don't know that until you go through the whole business with the frou-frou, and then you just have to dump it. So it's part of the friggin' process. Exactly. And sometimes you feel like you have to have loyalty to the frou-frou, because by God, it was part of your original design, and you can't mm. give up on that. But yeah, you, you have to go through that at some point, and just like cut away the fat. And they they mentioned that in the interview about the fact that there wasn't a lot of gore in this movie other than that mysterious package that Heather finds outside the tent. Um, oh, God. But they said that one of the reasons why they didn't have a lot of gore, you know, and they had originally had an ending that might have called for something like that, but they didn't have the money to do it. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, yeah. like... like a dismemberment scene. They did not have the funds in order to do that convincingly, so they decided not to have it. And it works so much better, I think, because they... Oh, it really did. Gore movies, yeah, there's a place for that in horror, but to me, it's always been what you don't see that is so much scarier. That confessional scene with Heather where she is staring right into the camera. I remember seeing that in the theater. My eyes were locked on the space just to the left of her head into the darkness where you couldn't see anything because I thought for sure something was going to come charging out of that darkness. And it, again, scared the hell out of me. Yeah, and they had, like, in the scene where they're running for their lives in the woods and she screams, what was that? What was that? They actually had somebody dressed all in white running off to the side, you know, who was going to possibly be the Blair Witch or something, whatever. And Heather, the actress, actually saw that and was screaming, but they didn't capture it on film. And even if they had, they weren't really sure it was going to be good it was so much better not seeing what she saw just like what was it oh my god but yeah you know i heard little things imdb trivia thank you imdb trivia apparently one of the cameras that they used for the filming they bought it at circuit city after they finished filming they actually refunded it they like turned it in and got their money back and so made their money stretching yeah they were really strapped for cash they really yeah, really the, were the budget was really really tight i mean listen to the if you get a chance to rent the movie and listen to the director's commentary they talk about all this stuff about like everybody watching the scene where they're all going across a log over the creek and they're just like oh, chewing their nails down because if they fell 
fell into the water with all that equipment. I mean, maybe set the production back, may have actually killed the production if it didn't result in an actor like bonking their head and drowning. Oh God, man. Hey, so did in the because I've never listened to the director's commentary, but I have read all of the IMDb trivia. Did they talk about some of the ideas that they almost did for the very ending? Um, no, not in the director's oh. commentary. Not, and we'll probably get into a little bit more of the sequels. But Julia, um, she talked about the fact that she has this story in her mind for like the background of the story and a lot of it might involve like an Indian burial ground. I mean, as stereotypical as that, I imagine she could have come up with something amazing for that, but they didn't get a chance to tell that particular story. So who knows? So they originally they'd filmed the ending that we saw with him standing facing the wall and her screaming was the original ending that they had filmed and they showed it to test audiences who were friggin' terrified but also very confused because at the time they hadn't filmed the scene where the guy is explaining how when the serial murderer was killing the kids he made one of them face the wall. That actually was filmed later to explain what was happening, and that's and then they let them keep the original ending with that little piece of explanation. I'm like, because they were there was like versions of like Mike hanging from a noose or Josh impaled on a giant stick figure creature or whatever, you know, real stereotypical horror things. But they went with the ending that they did, which is to me just oh my god, just so brilliantly. Quietly, yet loudly terrifying. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And thank God, I had forgotten about that bit in the earlier part of the film where somebody talked about Rustin Parr making his Mm. children, the victims, stand facing the wall. As we were getting up out of the theater, I overheard someone beside me explaining that to like the person that he went to the movie was saying, yeah, because he made his victim stand facing the wall. I'm like... Oh, oh, God. (laughs) I know. It's like, oh, my God, no, it's even worse. And the bloody handprints, the kids' handprints on the walls was such, because you only get a glimpse of them most of the time. Just brilliant. So we should talk a little bit about the sequels, because I never saw the one that came out like a year after the original one, uh, Book of Shadows, I think. And you did. Yeah, I went to, I was, I saw... Boy, that'll put the time period. Um, I saw The Blair Witch Project in Asheville, but I saw the sequel was one of the first movies that I saw when I moved to San Diego. And I was so excited for this movie, and I went to see it. And it's one of the first times that I can remember seeing a movie in the theater and being like, oh, wow, yeah, that's, hmm, that's... And then over the course of the day, I'm like, God, that really sucks. You know, it's just, it's not... I've never watched it since then, and I only vaguely remember the plot. I don't think it's great. It's probably not, like, the worst movie ever made, but it is just a teeny bopper horror movie. It has very, 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 very little to do with the original movie. And that is something that the creators talked about, was the fact that this was the production company, Artisan, saying, we've got to have a sequel, and it's got to come out right away while there's still buzz about this first one. Oh, so they no. rushed it through literally a year after that one. And and then, you know, they, you know, the I think they probably thought a little bit better of the one that we saw in 2016. I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. they said in all of these cases, 
it's being the movies are being made by people who are fans of the Blair Witch brand, and that's what they're uh-huh. trying to create. But they're not necessarily like exploring the mythology or going any deeper into it. Which is why the 2016 movie was almost like a beat for beat remake of the first one. Exactly. I mean, you could tell it was made by fans, you know, and uh, boy, it's the very literal definition of a cash grab, the first one. But I mean, I want to give Artisan Entertainment some credit. I don't think that company actually exists anymore from my research. But you know, the the studio that was responsible for purchasing, you know, the film and doing all the marketing and, you know, they actually, I think, they funded some of the reshoots that happened in the movie. And, um, you know, they were responsible for the finished final polished version, I guess, but they're also the company and their previous incarnations. They're also responsible for Reservoir Dogs and Pie, Requiem for a Dream, and Stir of Echoes. Huh. Okay. Some of those I like. Um, Nathan and I were just talking about Reservoir Dogs tonight because Quentin Tarantino has another movie coming out soon. And we both agreed... Reservoir Dogs isn't something we ever want to see again. I mean, no, it made no, me feel totally so terrible. I mean, it was a good movie. Um, Hannah, a little sister Hannah, has recommended a new podcast for us, uh, Best Picks. Another British mm. podcast goes through all of the Oscar winners. And they, like, they'll start their episodes with a conversational topic or a question or something. And one of them was, what is your favorite scene in film? The scene with the bathroom story in Reservoir Dogs was one of those. That was pretty amazing. I actually went back and I think I found a YouTube clip of it. I mean, you're right. I mean, the ending of that movie is depressing. The guy getting shot in the backseat of the car with the blood everywhere is so realistically grimy. I mean, it's amazing. I don't need to see any of that. But the bathroom scene and the way he tells it and the way it is filmed, that's a brilliant bit of film. Sure is. So yeah, Artisan... They did some good work, so kudos to them. Maybe should not have rushed Book of Shadows out quite so damn fast. No, I don't think so, not at all. But that actually, Mm. that one last note I wanted to say about sequels that the creators mentioned, technically, uh, following the mythology of the first movie, you really can't have a good sequel happening until 2034, when uh, the time period, uh, it cycles through every, I think, 40 years. So. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That's right. Oh, we could do a sci-fi version of it. Ooh, can you oh, imagine? Somebody make that movie. Oh, my God. A sci-fi futuristic Blair Witch Project. Yes, please. <laughs> so I guess, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to talk about the Blair Witch? You good? I'm good. I think I got all my oh, notes. Man. And I took a lot of I notes. Did too. <laughs> I did, too. I had them down. I have like a little page up with the IMDb trivia up on everything. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's been a little while since I watched it. It's... It holds up. It It really does. It holds up brilliantly. So I think you had mentioned that there was some stuff that you had been watching this week. Yes. Watch the first episode of season three of Stranger Things. And I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I have talked to a couple of people and they said that season three is not going to be an entire season of we've got to save Will. So God, yeah. Winona Ryder is so wonderful. I'd like to see her do something else other than trying to find Will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good. All right. No, I haven't watched that yet. I'm I'm also cautiously optimistic. I just I've been, of course, when I went home to visit mom and dad and Hannah, I know you probably watched a lot of episodes of The Great British Bake Off. Exactly. Yes. Finished up another season, started another season. I'm just so mm-hmm. hooked on that show. Yeah. And then we were also watching 
just kind of like to have something on in the background. We had Netflix's The Crown on, which I've already watched all the way through. It's still pretty good the second time around. When are we going to get the next season? I don't know. Take your time, Netflix. Seriously. Oh, I'm totally I was just about to say, uh, after talking about rushing things to production, it take all the time you need, but let's just have yeah. something really good, please. I have actually watched the first three episodes of season three of Jessica Jones. Ooh, and how are they? It's fine. Oh, rats. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole thing about her friend. And I just, I don't care. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I really... I mean, things happen, and I think it has potential. Three episodes in, I mean, there's ten episodes in the season, so three episodes in, and it's still really establishing things. So it could be, there's nothing horrific that's happened. It's just so far, I'm like, hmm, okay, we're, we're okay so far, but Netflix, please. Jada says that she thought it was way better than the second season, so cross your fingers. Um, in other news, I've been reading several issues of The Wicked and the Divine that she recommended. Oh, yes, and? Wow. Oh, that is, re- I mean, they, the writer really does not believe in giving you too much information. I mean, you are it's just true. finding things out very gradually while this world just sort of unfolds around you, which makes you realize that you're finding things out probably at about the same pace that the people in the story are finding things out. Yeah, there is a little bit of world building to kind of establish the fact that this is something that really does happen every 90 years, uh, but they've... They've left things a little vague. It's like, you know, we were talking about the movie Bright and how the very lazy world building, because there's so much that they mentioned about history, but they don't explain how it fits in. I think they keep things really light with historical events. So um, I, I don't know. It's I th- they do a good job, I think. But um, I like the idea. What was the story? Was it? Is it the author Kelly Link? Is that what it is? Yes, yes. I like this idea of you have these gods who have these shows because they're gods. They have to be worshipped. So they get their worship nowadays by becoming pop stars. But people just go crazy at their shows. It's the things they live for and the posters on their walls and the forums and the tweets and everything. And I love this idea of this thing that they've created that your whole life will just be just all about just trying to see this one show that you love so much. And I thought Kelly Link had done that with some of her short stories yes. as well. Yes. Oh my god, my favorite Kelly Link short story, one of my favorite short stories ever, and I think it's called Magic for Beginners, and it is about the TV show The Library that is yes. sort of like a pirate show that will just appear at random times and there's whole fan bases set around notifying everybody when the next episode is on and it's all so weird and wonderful and yeah that there is a lot of that in the wicked and the divine this not just the gods themselves but the mythology that their fans build around them and shape the world around them yeah it's definitely worth a read it's fun and the art is so pretty is and then you're going to get to a few episodes where they have some other artists jumping in and the quality is variable um but that happens for about five or six issues and then you're going to go back to the regular artist (laughs) okay just just give the regular artist a bit of a break and then back to work yes absolutely and of course because i had loaned you my copies of the wicked and the divine and you loaned me copies of motor girl which i finally got to finish oh what'd you think oh man I love his style of art in there. I mean, her expressions are so good. It's like this really deceptively simple style because it's all line art. It's all black and white. And you look at it and you think, oh, it's really simple. But 
the, her face has just such a great texture and Mike looks wonderful and everything. And then the story, there were two times and I knew about the first one. I hadn't known about the second one, but two times where I actually got choked up reading it. And one was when she says, I was never alone. It's just, oh God, it kills me. And the, the panel that goes with it is amazing. But then there's another one where he says, he didn't want you to keep me safe. <sighs> and it just, and what follows after that. And it's, it's only, what is it? Um, what is it, like 10 issues, maybe? Something like that. It's a very yeah. short series. I was surprised. And it wraps up fast. And, yeah, it and does. part of it, part of it makes me, you know, feel like he didn't really stick the landing. Because yeah. it is one of those things that uh, other writers do this sort of thing and you get kind of mad. But it also kind of works too. The yeah, way it's, he wraps it up. Yeah, it's yeah, it's good. I mean, it it does feel like maybe if it had taken maybe two more issues to sort of establish things, it wouldn't have felt quite so rushed. But at the same time, I was happy with the ending. I was yeah. perfectly yeah, I was fine with it. So yeah, that's that's definitely worth a look. But I guess it's going to wrap us up for the week, so make sure to check out pixelatedgeek.com for all the book reviews, the comic book reviews, the movie reviews, the photo galleries. At the time this episode drops, we are in Comic-Con! Woo! San Diego! Have fun! Thank you, thank you. Um, I think so far Jade and I have an invite to go to a Doctor Who virtual reality thing, and then we're going to go to a panel about Snowpiercer and I have put in a request to possibly get to do a quick interview of Marigrid Scott at IDW because she is apparently going to be doing something with Transformers. I had oh heard that. My. Yeah, I had heard that all the writers in the original Transformers weren't going to be participating in the new one. Guess that's not the case. Well, I'm. It sounds like they're opening it up to new series and new mm. storylines, so everything's changing. Maybe yeah. they'll start bringing people back in. Lord knows, Alex Milne is still doing wonderful commission work of those yes. characters from the previous series and posting it on Twitter so you guys need to check that out yeah also um, Sarah Peter Drosher does some commission stuff every once in a while and I love she's genuinely a Transformers fan so she'll just do <laughs> god do you remember she did like it's Starscream but it's Starscream post workout and it's like he's wearing a mesh shirt and gym shorts and it's got a towel around his neck holding a water bottle I think she just kind of did it for fun you know it's <laughs> pretty amazing but Anyway, all that and more, pixladygeek.com. So, I don't know, we're probably still not going to have an IVL episode by the time uh, next week rolls around? I still don't know what's going on. I haven't seen any news whatsoever. We'll keep our fingers crossed that we'll get an episode at some point. It yeah. could be that they're just on summer break. They deserve a summer break. we just they like really to do. find that out. Yeah, that'd be nice. Just give us a heads up, please. That'd be great. Uh, anyway, one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to y'all later. Ooh.